Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction, fantasy, science, the universe, and jelly babies, and just everything. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of a young adult trilogy. The second book, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, comes out in April. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And my latest book is about archaeology. It's out now in paperback, and it's called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. So today we're going to be talking about the Wheel of Time. Boop, boop, boop. Um, the Wheel of Time is a super, what are, it's one of the most successful fantasy book series of all time. And it's now become a hugely popular TV series on Amazon. Why is this show and the books so incredibly addictive and fascinating? And how does it kind of reflect some, some interesting tropes about gender and society? To help us figure all of this out, we're going to be joined by author C.L. Clark, the author of The Unbroken, which is the first book in The Magic of the Lost Trilogy. And uh, just a warning, there's going to be some spoilers for both the books and the TV show of Wheel of Time, although I don't think any major ones after the first season. Also in our audio extra next week, we're going to be talking about why so many epic fantasies seem to take place in the late Middle Ages or early modern Europe. And by the way, did you know that our patrons get audio extras with every single episode, plus essays, reviews, and access to our Discord channel? It's all amazing, and it can be yours for just a few bucks a month. This podcast is entirely supported by you, the listeners. So anything you give goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. It also pays for our candy budget. That's true. We're so excited to be joined by C.L. Clark, the author of the amazing new book, The Unbroken. And uh, C.L., thanks for joining us. Welcome. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I um, I don't want to be too much of a fan kid on Maine, but um, between like Never Say You Can't Survive and Aww. Autonomous, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm a little, whew, it's a little hot in here. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Feeling well, is definitely Definitely mutual. back at you. Yeah. We are loving the unbroken. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so great to get to talk to you. Um, so we just wanted to start with the most basic question in the universe, which is, what is the Wheel of Time about? And where does, you know, <laughs> and explain like 15, 20 books, I don't know, of like story yeah, in like a what? few sentences, please. Yeah, definitely. Um, really easy. So <laughs> basically, it's about this plucky gang of kids who go off to discover that they all have some important role to play in this last battle against the Dark One. Um, and in particular, one of them is the Dragon Reborn, who is important because he's the reincarnation of the man who imprisoned the Dark One in the first place. And so you've right. got like 15 books of finding him, finding all of them, and dealing with all of the internal politics of the universe to go fight one big bad guy. And he's not Sauron. He's he's totally not Sauron. He's some other guy. He's like... Sheree, you've said that the Wheel of Time books were really important to you and that they kind of helped to inspire you to write fantasy. What is it that you love about these books? You know, honestly, I think that part of it is that they came at the right time for me. They were my first big fantasy series. Like, some people found, like, the Terry Goodkind series first. Some people found the Shannara series first. Um, but the one that I found was The Wheel of Time. It had been like I was in middle school and it had been repackaged as a sort of like, I don't even know if it was a kid's version because it wasn't abridged. I'm pretty sure it was the same book, but it was illustrated. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, it was illustrated and the and book one, The Eye of the World, was cut in two. And so the two books were called From Two Rivers and the second one was called To the Blight. And so that was how I was introduced to it first. And 
<laughs> and then I remember like trying to find the sequel and I was like looking through all of the kids section because I had, I bought the book from my scholastic book fair um, from school. And so I'm oh, walking wow. around and I'm super shy. So I don't ask a single bookseller where to find the books until one time whoever adult was buying the books for me. They're like, look, just we're going to go talk to these people. Just hold your panties and... <laughs> 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 and so then they just walk me right over to a shelf full of them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, the adult <gasps> section. There's a million books. And it's the adult <laughs> versions. Oh, my God. It's like so much more yeah. grown up. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you learned an important lesson, which is that booksellers are friends. Yes. Yes. I have. I have now I always talk to booksellers. I love booksellers. And um, that was pretty much the beginning of the end for me. Because once <laughs> I found out that there was an adult fantasy section... Uh, and so then, like, the thing that did kind of set We Live Time apart was that um, there are so many women in charge of things. And at the time, I, I was definitely more, like, women identified. And, and, and so it made sense to me to be like, oh, yes, all these women have magic powers. Now, maybe <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to be, like, one of the sword people, but there was a lot of gender stuff I wasn't ready for. So I also really identified with um, the the maidens of the spear because they got to fight, they got to to do the physical stuff um, in ways that the magic women didn't get to, and so it was a lot of yeah, it was a lot of that I think that made me really really glom onto it. So it sounds like what really got you excited was the characters and the fantasy setting. Maybe was secondary to just the fact that there were all these characters that you could really get into. I mean, I think that it was, it is still, it boggles me when I think about trying to write something like this. It's such an in-depth world. It's so, I don't even, like, the amount of of wikiing I would have <laughs> to keep. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. And so there's something, there's some, definitely something about that that I I stick to, just like, I stick to like the Lord of the Rings. There's just so much and it's so I mean, as far as I can tell, it's so organized. Yeah. I mean, having tried to do that and having actually tried to keep a wiki <laughs> for my world, it's actually it's a nightmare. It's just a super total nightmare. And I've ended up just sort of having to just go back and look at the previous books and be like, what the heck was this thing? What do they do? Oh yeah. So it's a pain in the neck. So, you know, talking about the TV show. Not having read the books, full disclosure, mm-hmm. my impression is that the TV show kind of is a, is is queerer and maybe a little bit more, you know, just a little bit more progressive in some ways. Like, do you think that that's true? Like, in terms of like how the 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 characters are depicted? Oh yeah, definitely. And I don't know. Like, obviously, as we can get into the whole like, is this what the author intended? Blah blah blah, kind of stuff. But. Um, it wasn't until later in the books, I, I don't remember if my memory serves me well, because I, I read them, but I haven't um, haven't for a while. And um, I don't remember if we start talking about the quote-unquote pillow friends that the Aes Sedai <laughs> are um, in the Brandon Sanderson era or before that. Oh, my God. But it's definitely mentioned that and which is fair because, you know, it's an all-women institution. Like, I, it's just like, I kind of assume that somebody is having, like, you know, lesbianic type sex. So Yeah, like, what so, else are they doing up there? In exactly. Their <laughs> in the White Tower. <laughs> in the White Tower, exactly. Yeah, the I mean, Tower of Thrusting. You know, I love the that one episode where... You know, Moraine and the Emelyn seat are just like hooking up and doing kind of like BDSM role play and stuff. And I was just like, okay, oh yes, God. this is this is. I need this. I need way more is of this in my fantasy okay, so story. Is that oh actually oh in the book? Is that in the book, or was that like purely like just for us in the TV show? Both. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> of the pillow friends, I believe that Moraine and Swan were said to have had a historical, like it's not it's not current by any means, a, a historical relationship oh, as pillow friends. Um, I see. And maybe that ended when Swan became the Emer- the Emerlin, but um, I always, in my head when I was reading it, I always called it a Merlin, so <laughs> it's, it's, taking, it's taking some adjusting. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So that putting it textually like that and making it a continual relationship, that's mm-hmm. new. And frankly, I love it. Like that I screamed out loud when I when I saw that moment, but also like the moment later. Um, the moment later when um <laughs> when Moraine is telling the girls telling Egwene and Nynaeve that Swan Sanche waits for one woman and it's not you. That was uh, oh. <laughs> the look on her face when she says that. I was like, I actually did kind of scream when I when she said that. The kind of like the way she wigs at the camera almost. Like they, <laughs> her her back is turned to them and we see her kind of go, I'm that bitch. Yeah. Anyway. That's <laughs> so smug and so hot. Um, oh my so god, that that. I gotta say that that whole storyline with with Suan was like where I really I mean I already loved the show but I I really fell in love with the show during that part. I also just love how like nurturing and gentle the male characters are allowed to be with each other and with other people. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's so much male nurturing in this show and so much like mm-hmm. men treating each other like wounded baby birds, which I feel like is something that I don't know if it's in the books. It's definitely something. It, that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I mean that makes me like the books more. The friendship between the the three Taveran boys in particular, so Matt, Perrin, and Rand, they're actually like really close and really sweet to each other. Aww. And I think that it's um it's certainly different in in the TV show. I think they're nicer, and even Rand, I think, is a little bit cuter. He's, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, he's not my favorite character. <laughs> I, um. I have been actually calling him in my mind. I've been calling him Bland just from watching the show. Like I haven't read also. Yeah, read I the like yeah. Rand. I, I think mean, he's, he's not a little my Bland. <laughs> I like Rand. I don't know. So, you know, I feel like the show kind of seems to, I guess, part of why I never read the books is because I had gotten the impression that they were extremely gender essentialist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd read about how there are are two kinds of magic. There's male magic and female magic. There's like, Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, male magic is harsh and violent and female magic is gentle and yielding and nice. And it felt very essentialist. And you know, I feel like the TV show, from what I understand, makes a difference, to, makes a change to that, where it's like mag- magic has been poisoned so that men can no longer do it safely. It's true, isn't it? What they say about Manu Kinchelo, that eventually they go so mad they kill everyone they've ever loved. It is. I have a favor to ask you. Just one. Tell them I died here. Although... I want to throw out there, this is still very essentialist. It's still men and women mm-hmm. and a difference between how men and women can act. And there's no there's no non-binary people. There's no trans people. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, well, there's, there's no kind of edge cases. And there's also just like, it's very like, it's very gendered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about that in the books versus in the TV show? So the, the thing about the, the poison source, uh, it is still, uh, it's, it's, that's textual, and even at its, when it is, because it, it does get, like you said, spoilers, so here's a warning, everybody. It does get cleaned at some point. Okay. And even then, the the male side of the, the one power is, it's still like a, like riding a river is how, how it's described, or like a torrent of flames. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's very like, um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like they capture that in, in the TV show too. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of like riding the flames and like hearing the wind and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely still, it's definitely still um, very binary like that. And to be honest, I don't know that the t- even the TV show could fix that. I think, cause the source material mm-hmm. is just, it's very split. Um, but it is, in theory, it is the same thing. It's just how the different sides are 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 tapping it. And so sometimes mm. I wonder if if that could be seen more as like women are socialized to approach in this world. They're socialized yeah. to approach the power in this way because they are taught by other women who are taught by other women who are taught by all of these women who right. have learned to to deal with the one power in opposition to these men who have broken the world. Yeah, and the men are all untrained because there's no, as far as we can see in the show, there's no institutions that are for like magical guys 
Um, we, no. we do meet the one guy who's like a bard who's like, actually, I'm secretly kind of a magical guy. I didn't actually understand what, what his... Oh, Tom, the Gleeman, the guy with the yeah, daggers the who saved Matt. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah, and I was, I, because all I do is play D&D, I was like, oh, it's a bard with magic. That's, that's a type <laughs> of bard that you can be. Like, bards do have spells. I don't know if he... He doesn't actually do magic, does he? He just Mm-mm. sort of knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's aware... He's he, aware of men who have magic, it he's felt a like. Singing Obi-Wan. Yeah. He kind yeah. of. Yeah. He's like singing Obi-Wan. Without the without the he he's mm, he's more like a, a really wise Yaskier. Yes. Yeah, because he is he is a bard. Like that's his main yeah. job. And yeah. I was I was wondering what you two thought about um what and again, I'm kind of focusing on the show. Um, what is the show trying to do with gender? Like, I liked that idea that there's this hint that maybe it's not an essentialist view. Maybe it's just that women are kind of put into institutions where they learn how to use magic. Like, do you think that mm-hmm. this is a show that's trying to do like a gender flip so that it's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is fantasy, but like women on top? I mean, I think it's more mm-hmm. complicated than that because yeah. we do have... You know, there are a lot of powerful men in the show who are, like, powerful in the ways that men are traditionally powerful, Mm -hmm. like with military strength Mm -hmm. or with political power. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, rhetoric in the show about, like, like towards the end, I think it's uh, Nynaeve says, you know, women are never, women are always alone except they're never alone and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of talk about women and what it means to be a woman Mm -hmm. and what women know that men don't know. And, like, it feels like it's, there's a little bit, like, it feels like a show that's trying very hard to be feminist and that does succeed in being feminist in some really important ways, like giving Moraine a lot of nuance and giving, like, the men more gentleness and nurturing, like I said. But it's also a show that feels in some ways like it's embracing some very 90s feminism of, like, you know, mm. kind of what it what what it means to be a woman and, like, how there are things about being a woman that men will never understand. Kind so it's of. like power feminism. This is like Naomi Wolf. Kind of, but also <laughs> kind of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, maybe, like women who run with the wolves or something. Yes. I don't know. It's got a little bit of that going on. I don't know. What do you think, Sheree? You know, in some ways, I think that they're doing the best that they can with what they have. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, this is it's very, it's definitely a product of its time. And mm-hmm. for me, when I watch the TV show, it seems like greatly changed in some really good ways that make it a lot more enjoyable for me. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you know, like... I don't even know. And when I think, I, th- I tried to think about how they would handle a trans person with this magic system, for example. And I'm yeah. like, so mostly we'd have like, so say I'm, so I walk up into the tower and I'm like, hey guys, nice to see you. I've got some cool powers. I can channel your kind of magic, but I don't want you to talk to me, call me your sister. I don't want you to call me like, I'm not a woman of the Aes Sedai, like, to be honest, I think they'd just be like, all right, I guess, fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they might, if, if, you, if you were to walk up and say, hey, I'm a guy, I, ha- I can channel, then of course they'd like lock you up immediately, but then they'd like start probing you and they'd be like, well, wait a minute, you have the wrong kind of magic. You have the okay magic. And so, uh-huh. like, I mean, I feel, I feel like, at some point, they'd figure it out and be like, oh, okay, well. Yeah, I just, I I think that the question is, are they TERFs or are they, like, <laughs> you know, inclusive? I think, I think that some of them would be and some of them wouldn't. And I bet yeah. we can all imagine what Aja would probably be more TERFish. Than I mean, yeah. yeah, there was definitely, I feel like the show, one of the things mm. I like about the show is it's kind of like hinting at like, oh, yeah, the, the, bad, the TERFs are the really bad ones and like, yeah. stay away from them. Uh, Blondie, whatever her name is, um, Leandra uh, is Leandrin, like super yeah. turfy. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the tropes of Wheel of Time. This week, we'd like to recommend a podcast that we love called Science for the People. And it's exactly what it says on the tin. Science for the People hosts Bethany Brookshire, Rachelle Saunders, Annika Hazra, Carolyn Wilkie and Marianne Kilgower go deep 
with scientists and science journalists about issues in the world of science that impact society in the past, present, and future. They've talked with authors like Mary Roach, I love her, about human-wildlife conflict and with indigenous scientists about decolonizing scientific research. They've also even spoken with me about my book, Four Lost Cities. What I like about this podcast is that they always go into avenues you don't expect. They explore the social implications of science. So you'll learn a lot about new discoveries, but you'll also come away understanding the politics of how science is done. Do you feel your nerd powers intensifying? We thought so. Subscribe to Science for the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You will not regret it. This show is truly amazing. Yeah, so one thing I keep thinking about that's super interesting is that Wheel of Time is getting this really big budget, amazing adaptation at the same time as Dune. And they both kind of share this trope that's actually kind of an unusual trope of like the dude who's like the kind of prophesied savior who people have been waiting for for thousands of years. And he's the only one who can do the magic that's normally done by women, which in Dune, I guess, is like the Bene Gesserit magic. And the Bene Gesserit are basically a lot like the Aes Sedai in some ways. And like, but it's very much about like the one dude who can save us in a world where women have magic. And I'm wondering, like, is it weird that we're just, is it just a random coincidence that we're getting both of these like super gendered kind of magical savior stories at the same time? Or is it is it is there a reason mm-hmm. why they're both happening now? I had a couple thoughts about this. And like on the, on the one hand, I think it's slightly different because Rand slash the Dragon Reborn is definitely still using the men's magic and it's definitely tainted. Like there's a problem with it still. He's dealing with the same problems that all men who channel use, mm-hmm. uh, which means throughout the books he's he slowly starts going through the same madness that that Logan um, right. does in in the the first season of the TV show. But to your point, I I kind of wonder if it's more like that was a thing of like older genre fiction that it's not it's not that it's um it's not that we are doing it now because we want to, but I wonder how much of it is just that it takes a really long time for these to get made and it just <laughs> happens. I mean, <laughs> that they both happen right now. Yeah, that it's like makes a, sense. Yeah. It's like a residual trope that's still sticking around. And I, and I can think of like, you know, after Game of Thrones, people cast around for the next big high fantasy man epics and Dune and Wheel of Time are right there with like built-in fan bases because, you know, they're not going to, they're not taking like that many chances on new, just recently published type stuff. And even when they are, it's that's like five, six years of production into the future anyway. And so they have similar kind of ingredients, that Savior Destroyer thing, because for me, it feels actually kind of common in fantasy even though like when i think about it i don't know maybe i maybe i can't think of any more but that's the thing that like really surprised me because i went looking and i was like okay is this a trope that's used a lot of like the the you know all the the only women have magic but there's this one dude who's super powerful and like mm-hmm. those are the two examples that's pretty much it yeah. like they're it and like i feel like it's it's a trope that offers a lot of like you know, wish fulfillment in the way that a lot of like chosen savior tropes do. And it's like Mm -hmm. specifically like, you know, getting to be the one dude who is like super awesome where in a world where women are mostly the ones who are awesome makes you an even Mm -hmm. more awesome dude. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. I think Sheree is right that this is part of the savior destroyer trope as Mm -hmm. well, that that is that this is just a little tweak on that kind of character And I mean, both Dune and, you know, the Wheel of Time series are written after sort of the 1960s and 70s feminist science fiction became more mainstream. Right. So it's two dudes who are responding to the rise of feminist fiction. And they're like, oh, well, where do I fit into this? Like, maybe I can be the coolest. (laughs) Maybe maybe I can figure out a way to incorporate women's power, but still be even more powerful. Um, And see, and I wonder, like, because I don't think this really happens with Rand. He does get, like, his little harem and 
He gets God. a harem? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he God. <laughs> okay, that, that, I thought he was like a, all about like Egwene. Like Egwene is like. His... Yeah, she gets, she comes to her senses. It's fine. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but he gets, he gets, he gets all the other hot ones. Like, like men. Oh, my God. When I saw her, I was like, he does not deserve her. He does not deserve men. Um, Which one is men he, again? The one who can see the future. Oh yeah, a little. Oh, she hooks up with Rand. Oh no, what? she'll she can see how bad that's going to be, and she still does it. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> oh man, what a bummer! Wow, I really like her character. Well, whatever, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll show. see what they do. We'll see what they do. Um, there's also um, a couple others who also I think that you know I can't remember, but I, there's a Twitter a Twitter bot that couples his other two women together often. So I wonder if they have their own thing and I just don't remember it because uh, that would make me happier. Yeah. I've heard <laughs> I've, I've heard that in the books there's a lot of like open and also hinted at polyamory too. So that's kind of exciting. That is oh, yeah, exciting. Yeah. So I, w- I wonder why not, why they don't seem to, these authors, they go, their man characters go and take the girl magic but not, like all the associated softness that goes with it, you know? Right. Like if they're trying to to say like, look how I can infiltrate the women's spaces. They don't infiltrate the women's spaces and then become like the women. They just infiltrate and then take their own thing out of it to yeah. Although to be to be fair, like both the Aes Sedai and Benny Jessard are pretty badass. Like I would not call them at least the Benny Jessard I would not call soft. They're like no, yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. like <laughs> I will stick a you know a poison needle in your throat <laughs> level, you know, yeah. like that's just Saturday. That's I feel Saturday like, yeah, I feel like Jessard. that they are very that they're hard. And and that's one of the things that's awesome that's, about that's them. That's true. That's true. Yeah, but I, yeah. I know what you mean because I feel like in Wheel of Time there is more of a hint that there's a kind of intuitiveness to to their magic, um, like something mm-hmm. that we associate with traditional femininity. Yeah, and I'm thinking also just like specifically of like how they approach the magic. Like I remember in 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 the books, the way they teach the men to channel is focus on this flame, this fire, and then you feed everything into it. And then when they teach the girls to channel, it's always Think of this road but rosebud and you're going to like put your stuff into it and it's going to unfurl. And part of that is <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh and part God. of it is that they're learning from people who learn from the same institution. And so, you know, it's kind of like that institutional problem. Like if you have these teachers and these teachers learn this thing and they learn this thing, then you you all end up stuck in the same mode. But yeah, that was just my my thought I was trying to find again. I wanted to um, make sure that we talked about the political structure of this world, mm-hmm. um, which both Charlie Jane and I were confused by as we were watching the TV series because mm-hmm. so there's the Aes Sedai, which we I feel like the TV series basically lays out kind of what they are. But then there's the mm-hmm. White Cloaks, there's the Gleeman, mm-hmm. there's presumably some other governmental structures too, because otherwise who are the Aes Sedai dealing with. So we don't get a real concrete sense of like what's going on. Like what's moat are the white cloaks like the sworn enemies of the Aes Sedai? So how does this work Is in the book? Is there a church behind the white the white cloaks? Yeah. Like who, who I feel like it's supposed <laughs> Where do they get their authority from? Right. It's supposed to be the Inquisition. And I think we're mm-hmm. supposed to just see it and be like, oh, it's the Inquisition. Obviously, the they're Inquisition. here. And it's like, but also, where is Spain? Like, I mean, who's, who's like funding them? And Nobody expects know, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, as Charlie was asking, who's like dry cleaning all their white cloaks? Because they're like, they, they have to have like a whole like fleet yeah. of people. So how does that work in yeah. the books? Do you feel like it's more fleshed out there? I think it definitely is, though I did. So the Aes Sedai are just like, they... Uh, they're essentially a magic, a centralized magic situation. And so there are roaming Aes Sedai who kind of like, they follow hints of like, oh, this person can channel. Um, there's a weird wisdom over here. This girl blew up a thing. We'll just take her to the whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, this boy blew up a thing. We're going to take him, definitely. Like, so, <laughs> take and um, kill him. <laughs> Exactly. So there, there are people who are like, that's, that's, they're, they're just, they have, in theory, they have complete purview over all the one power stuff. 
Um, and they're, they're Power is given by actual power capacity, like one their strength in the one power. And so that's the really badass thing about Swan is that in theory, she is the most powerful channeler in the world. And then these like four or five kids show up and she's like, damn, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so where are the white cloaks from? Are they from another yes. country or like they're from the another deal? country? Well, in theory, they start as from another country. And so each different country has its own government. Some are councils, some are kings, monarchies, whatever kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go back and double check because I was like, wait, there's not a church. Is there a church? It's not a church. So the White Cloaks, in theory, they are hunting dark friends. Oh. Hence the White Cloaks. And they're kind of like this, they're this paramilitary group that came out of one country and got so powerful that essentially they are the political ruler of that country, even though there's a king or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they think the Aes Sedai are kind of also dark friends or something? Yes. Anybody who can touch the one power is a dark oh. friend because, because the one power is what broke the world in the first place. Oh, um, okay. That's, that, that's interesting. So it's become like a religion. It's like they have that sort of zealous fervor, but um, yeah. Yeah, I just kept wondering with like the White Tower, like they have like a town around it. They have all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Presumably they have food. Who grows Mm -hmm. the food to feed the Aes Sedai like in the White Tower? Like are there farms that are like beholden to them? Do they get like tribute from like neighboring areas? Yeah, I mean, I think think they're just, um, they're like, they're a city state essentially. Mm. And... A city tower state. Their, their city is Tarvalon, <laughs> and I think they're, they they have no other no external governing body. They are themselves. Mm, so but they're they, kind of in charge of their own country. So it's like a magical country or a magical city state. Because they mm-hmm. must have peasants who actually like you know if, if it's like quasi feudal. I don't know. What is that even called? A mono a mansi archy or a. What, what? What, like a magical <laughs> magical high, what, what is it what is like an oligarchy with magic it's like a olamancy <laughs> sorry well, I mean, you know, te- technically technically they are a council okay so it's the, I, so I, right. yeah because they have the 12 people in the merlin seat mm-hmm. um or, or however many there are i forget but they're not um, like elected it's not a democracy it's not a democracy i know it is farmers voted <laughs> for like the merlin seat yeah we see the violence inherent in the system <laughs> anyway um yeah so yeah. one thing that sort of interests me about the wheel of time i think both and this probably in, from the books as well as the tv show is this the notion that fate and reincarnation are kind of intertwined and mm-hmm. that like reincarnation is part of what determines your role in the world like they talk about the wheel and the like the threads and everything and when they talk about that they use it to describe both the notion of like your past lives especially in the case of the dragon or or your next life and what we're going to be together in our next life or whatever but also mm-hmm. um you know what you're destined to do and what like how important you are to the wheel the wheel does not care if you are young or afraid it certainly doesn't care what you want the wheel calls you to this whether you can bear it or not what any of us wants now is meaningless the only thing that matters is what you do. I think that's super interesting, especially considering how Christian most fantasy, most European fantasy is. And this mm-hmm. feels like it's trying to like graft uh, on almost like Hindu or, you know, some other sense of like some other religion involving more reincarnation and, and predestination mm-hmm. onto a very, what feels still feels like a very Christian world. And um, how, do, how do you feel like that works? And why why is reincarnation such an important thing? I mean, it does some interesting stuff with the stakes for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it has the same kind of fate thing as a lot of fantasy. Like, you are the chosen one. You are destined to do this. And sure, you can try to get out of it, but the wheel's just going to turn you back in again somehow. Um, and then the same thing with the Taviran kids. I like how the TV show has kind of spread the Taviran to the girls as well. But... um like there are things that can happen that like if something 
if you get hurt in a certain way with a certain kind of, of magic attack, it's called Balefire, like it just rips your entire thread out. Like you can't come back. Everything you ever did in the past is gone. Wow. Um, yeah. So there, like that's one that's like that's a fate worse than death in theory. And other cool stuff happens as well. Like um, there's a little for those who read the books, at least I got really excited when Matt is um, takes the little girl's toy and he's like, oh, it's Brigida or however they say it in the TV show, because Brigida is, is one of the, the great heroes of the past. And there's a horn that Matt will blow Ooh. and bring all of the heroes of the past out of the wheel and back to fight in the last battle. Whoa. Um, Dude. And Brigida's one of them. And yeah, it's so awesome. <laughs> so, so it allows for, yeah, I love that it kind of like allow you to kind of tap into heroes of the past. And I do think... yeah. I mean, what we were just talking about with different nations, like the nation where the white cloaks come from is a more Christian nation. And it seems like the Aes Sedai nation is much more being cast as some kind of, like you said, Hindu or like some other type of spirituality. Um, so maybe that's why they get the power of reincarnation. I mean, I think everybody kind of believes in the same wheel thing, just like like the the Tuatha'an, the traveling people. They're always they're looking for this thing they lost, and they're hoping to find it again. The Aiel are also looking for someone to be spat out of the wheel. Surprise, surprise! It, it's going to be the dragon, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's convenient. So it's less it's less reincarnation and more like I mean, people do get reincarnated, but it's not like everyone gets reincarnated, right? It's just like certain They're, fancy They people. kind of make it seem like everyone does. And I mean, I guess that's that's fair. It's certainly easier to explain. I don't remember that as strongly from the books. Even, even like the big bad guys, not like, I guess they'd be most analogous to the Nazgul. Um, so they supported the Dark One. And, but even they die and get reborn. I think like the path is a little different. Because um, I think they like force their way back into the world, but it's the same kind of concept. They they get born again in new bodies. There's even um oh I completely forgot some of the Forsaken do come back in different gendered bodies, like different like physical sex bodies, nice. and so that is um I wonder I wonder if the TV show will do anything interesting. I with mean that. yeah they did keep saying oh the dragon could be reborn as a woman this time the dragon could be reborn mm -hmm. as like more than one person. Yeah, I mean, the impression I get from the TV show is that, like, everybody gets reincarnated, but most people just don't matter that much. Most people are yeah. just kind of like, you're cannon fodder. You're going to be cannon fodder in your next life and your next life, and you'll just keep getting, mm -hmm. like, not mattering too much in the, the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Before we wrap up our discussion of, of all of this, I want to make sure that we talk about the big trope, which is the chosen one. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've been talking a little bit about already how the chosen one works in Wheel of Time. And, you know, there's been, especially over the last like 10 years or so, a lot of criticism of this type of trope that we're a little bit sick of chosen ones. Maybe we could start thinking about, you know, collectives <laughs> as heroes or, mm -hmm. you know, subverting the idea of the chosen one. Um, obviously, these are books from before that period of criticism. These were books written in the mm -hmm. 90s when we were still all in on chosen one. Um, I'm wondering what both of you think about how the TV show is kind of grappling with that. Are we seeing any subversion of it? Um, is it really just re-embracing the chosen one uh, trope because we we're still hungry for it, even though there's a lot of criticism that's legitimate of that? I, <laughs> I so I think there is legitimate criticism, and I mean there are like essays upon essays written about it. But um, I think I'm I personally as a as a reader and stuff like I'm. I'm into it. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> but I, but what I do want is that it's not the same demographically like cishet white man chosen one, because I think theoretically a different person in any demographic other than that, which is our kind of textbook individualist 
Playboy. Like that's just that's just what we put in. We put cishet white man, individual, save the day, whatever. Like it's all about it's all about him. He has the power. He's gonna do all of it. He's gonna make all the sacrifices, whatever. We don't care about anybody else. And to be honest, I do think actually that Wheel of Time itself changes that quite a lot. Like the last battle is literally like, I mean, like the the 15 book series is about all these people basically handing out flyers to all the different royals of the world and being like, hey guys, do you want to come to my last battle? <laughs> Thanks, cool. <laughs> hey guys, do you want to come to my last battle? We need some army. Hey guys, you guys can't fight each other. We need you both for the last battle. Okay. Hey guys. And so it's like, it goes on like that. And, and we've got, you know, Rand and his two best friends who are supposed to bring all of these other aspects. Like there are so, so, so many different players, like even from Matt finding this weird little fox people, they're like the Aelfin and Eelfin. Like it's, it gets really complicated. <laughs> it's really weird. It gets, it just, you just got to go with it. Yeah. And, and so he's asked to, to bring like these people from across the sea, the people that we see at the very end of the season, like we have to get all these people to go fight this big bad guy. And so it is a very communal thing. Uh-huh, yeah. And, and that's like, so the, like, that's why there's like 50 different points of view when you're reading the books. And I like, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I, w- I would, I would like to see more, I guess. So when I think about it in terms of what actually happens in the real world, we don't have chosen ones per se, but we do have individuals who are allowed about things that need to change. We're not all, we're not, we're just, we're just not all the heroes. Um, we may follow the hero, which is great. Like, fine. Um, like that, that's, that's, we can't all be heroes. We all just have to go because if otherwise we have too many people going in two different directions, too many different directions. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> We need we need people to just support and do the thing. But so then how do we get those chosen ones? In the real world, they have to choose themselves. Like they they have to decide, okay, I know enough about this. This is a wrong thing. I'm gonna go do this thing. And people either come along for the ride or they don't. And so I don't think that the chosen one is is so bad in that way. I think it's it just oversimplifies what it means to be a leader very often. It's, it's just too simplistic. That's a really interesting way of looking at it, that basically it's a model of like inspiring people or leading or, you know, providing kind of a focal point. But we we want to simplify it down to just like you are the one who is going to defeat the bad thing. You're the one, you're the only one who can hold the sword. You're the only one who can, you know, do the thing. Do the I lady mean, magic. I, you know, I've been <laughs> one of the people who've criticized the trope of chosen ones and like the whole hero's journey thing, which is kind of related to the chosen one thing often. Um, mm-hmm. I've been a critic of that for at least 10 years. I feel like I've definitely written some very bitchy rants about the hero's journey, <laughs> which I feel like actually one of the things that about the Will of Time show is that I'm like, okay, stop refusing the call already. Yes, we get it. You want to go home. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't go home. Yeah. Get over it, kids. Yep. Um, which yep. I feel like that's part of that goes along with that. But I do mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of like the chosen one and the hero's journey and all that kind of stuff. It's comfort food. And it's one of those things where like, I feel like those of us who obsessively read like every fantasy novel and or, or write our own fantasy novels and who obsessively think about this stuff like 24-7 get jaded faster than like average people. And like, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like where everybody's like, oh, paranormal romance is over portal fantasies are over like people who are kind of in the know people in the inner circle of publishing and writing and like criticism will decide that a trope is like finished and then you know ordinary readers might be like no i i still want that trope i still really like that trope and i feel like it is comfort food and you know one of the things i worry about sometimes is that because there's a certain overlap between those of us who obsess about this stuff all the time and marginalized creators who are kind of really active in these communities that, you know, you'll get tropes like The Chosen One only being created by someone like Robert Jordan or 
mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, and those are actually really popular tropes. And I, I feel like it's, what's good is if you can bring something new to it, which I do think actually the Wheel mm-hmm. of Time is doing by like being like, no, there's actually five people who are important. And, you know. And they're not all white Jesus. They're not all white Jesus. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a, like a little bit more diversity in those five than in just like Rand. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that that's a plus. And I think that, you know, the more you can make it into like, we're doing this together. And like, yes, there's somebody who's a leader who's an inspiring figure. That's sure. That's great. I actually really mm-hmm. like that. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think that that's given me a new way to think about the chosen one trip. So thanks for that. Yeah, no, I like the the point that, in fact, all of the pretty much every chosen one you can think of, like their role is really to consolidate a bunch of communities. You know, it's not that nobody wins. I mean, I'm sure there are occasionally <laughs> chosen ones <laughs> who do win on their own. Like they get the super weapon. Jake and then Sully rode the dragon. He rode the fancy dragon. And like, anyway, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that that is like, I think the difference between kind of like a toxic chosen one narrative and like a generative chosen one narrative is probably that one acknowledges the community and one is like just like hyper focused on white jesus i'm gonna just keep picking picking on white jesus sorry (laughs) yeah and i mean i think that probably also just depends on the writer and if they let themselves focus on like everybody like all of the the tech crew you know behind the scenes like or are we only focusing on the lead (laughs) uh because like somebody like like you said somebody's got to do the dry cleaning like and who who is it (laughs) and i want to know about them so i totally want a fantasy epic about the dry cleaner who cleans the hero's like cloak (laughs) and it's just like what did you get into it this time oh my god uh like (laughs) That's kind of the Persian boy a little bit. So if you've ever read any Mary Renault, it's like he's just, Hmm. yeah, the Persian boy is basically just like the like lover of Alexander the Great who like hangs out, Mm. hangs out in his room and like does his laundry and dances for him. And he's actually not a very good dancer, but like because Alexander loves him so much, everyone has to pretend like he's a really great dancer. Um, Relatable. Yeah. So definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Let's (laughs) have our Mary Renault revival. So, all right, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Sheree about her novel, The Unbroken. I'm in the middle of reading The Unbroken and I'm just loving it so much. I'm just like, I all I don't even want to be sitting here talking. I want to be back in my room finishing reading it because it's just such an incredible <laughs> book. And I'm, I already want the next one really badly. So, you know, I read an interview where you said that one of the reasons why you wanted to write fantasy is because you didn't feel like you looked like or loved like the heroes in the fantasy stories that you grew up reading. And, you know, is The Unbroken in part uh, a response to things like Wheel of Time? Oh, yeah, definitely. 100%. <laughs> so, like I mentioned earlier, you know, about not yet figuring out gender feelings or even sexuality feelings until, I don't know, like halfway through the series, at least. Um, it, I just, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> it was, <laughs> oh, you're going to make me go into some sort of like... Um, self-reflective crisis of the soul. (laughs) Um, But um, I really, first off, I just really wanted gay women. Like I wanted to read, I wanted to read that. I wanted to see that. And even at that point, I wasn't even, I had a lot of internal stuff about race to deal with. Like in in fantasy, like I, I was like, oh, well, is this, is this, real fantasy if it has black people because black people can't be elves so clearly i need to go look for the white elf fantasy or something like that like it was it was really fucked up it was really messed up can i say that oops yeah of course (laughs) you can absolutely absolutely curse on our podcast (laughs) okay well it was really fucked up um and it took a long time to get over and around that and you know it's all everything's still a work in process a lot of things to constantly be interrogating and one of the things that I really did want to do is put people like me in and and for on on some levels it's a gender thing and on some things it's like a it's about like including butch lesbians in yeah. particular yeah um because I still don't see those anywhere in any media like like when we got Gideon and we got Gideon on the cover with like Tommy Arnold art 
I lost my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the first thing I saw is that she had like girl porn mags and was doing push-ups, and I was like, "Damn, is this- <laughs> yeah, like I, what?" I think that first page was what like sucked in a lot of people yeah, with the, the porn amazing. and the push-ups, and and that's Gideon the Ninth, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I do. I love the character of Turin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. Turain, um, Turain, yeah. and like how mm-hmm. how buff her arms are. Like, there's a lot of like her <laughs> arms are so buff, and she's so like she's such a total badass. I love that about her. Yeah, I wanted to ask about um, Turain's character more because you were saying that um, as you were thinking through um, Wheel of Time and and your love of fantasy, you had a lot of racial stuff that you wanted to deal with, and Turain is dealing with basically internalized racism. And I wanted to just ask you to talk a little bit about that and why you chose to do that with your character and kind of how that might be different from what we would normally see in a fantasy story. So basically with The Unbroken, my goal was to complicate everything. And like from sexuality to what we see of of how people present as their genders. Like I love my little soft boy bastion, like terrain in her arms. The things that we... We don't often get to see depicted um, in our kind of stereotypical epic fantasy type things. And with colonialism, we have all of these we have all of these fantasies where we're going to conquer somewhere, we're going to go steal this magic object, and like you're stealing it from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I wanted to complicate with terrain is like, so we have this this situation where we've got the colonized and the colonizer. And I don't think that there are, until until recently, like I think of like Arkady Martin's Memory Called Empire mm-hmm. and Desolation Called Peace, we don't actually talk about the consequences of that conquest mm-hmm. that often. And I mean, sure, sometimes people will mention like, ah, and then the land was desolated by <laughs> all of the war. And I'm like, okay, cool, but... What about the people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happened to them? And so that was what was really important for me to deal with um, with with terrain was to just see what does it what does it mean to be a person caught in this actual sort of machine of fantasy, but also in real world colonialism. Yeah, and of course, like in the book, Terrain is returning to the country that she was ripped away from as as a child, and she was conscripted as a soldier in the the Beladarian Empire, which colonized her home. And she she's come home to kind of help impose order on her her former home and her her own people. And she sort of looks down on her people and thinks that they're inferior. It's such a common thing, not just in the fantasy world, but like there are so many of us who are removed from a a quote-unquote homeland or motherland and raised in some metropole as as a as a privileged person of that metropole like with all of the and like I have an American passport and the power that gives me to move about the world regardless of where I came from is definitely different from someone who doesn't have that And, and even if even if on like the physical outset or in in interactions with other people, we have the same same stigma, and and so that's something that I really wanted to explore with terrain and with the other sands is like what that does to you and how it distances you from people you might call family or 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 can't call family. Yeah, and that's just so complicated and so heartbreaking and so like so powerfully depicted in your novel and. You know, and then you have this intense relationship between Terrain and like the princess Luca, who is kind of like the prospective heir to the throne of this empire and who has come to Bisky, like finish subjugating Terrain's people. And like, why did you think it was so important to represent Luca's point of view in the book as like the colonizer? And why was it important to have that relationship be kind of so central in the book? Part of it was like, part of it's just my id. Like, I was like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> We want a bodyguard and royal romance. Well, yeah, and true. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't want that? So that's that's kind of how it started. But um, that was just like, it, you know, it was the first foray into the story. 
And the more I got into it, I was like, no, no, this is what I actually really want to do. This is what I want to talk about. The more I realized that I couldn't just have that relationship be so simple. And then I realized how much it was actually uh, like the personal negotiations between them were, you know, they're, they're, they are representative of the larger political landscape. Just like, you know, in the real world, the same thing. We we have to deal with political struggles that like within our own, like power struggles within our own relationships, because there's always some sort of power differential to navigate, even with the people that we love. And so partly I was just like, well, you know, this is one of the big bad tropes. Like the, <laughs> yeah. we, we, the, the good guy who's the servant falls in love with the master. And <sighs> how do right. we, how do, how, how can this work? If it can, how, what has to happen for it to work? Is it doomed? And so, you know, I don't know. We'll find out in a couple books. Yeah. I <laughs> just love how you, I, I love how you remind the reader that the process of colonization is both personal and political. You know, I think that that's the kind of phrase that we often hear used talking about gender. But I think as as you're saying, it's like this is something that affects us psychologically. It affects our romances. It affects our families. You know, it's not just like, mm-hmm. it's not always just a whole bunch of people marching in and killing people. That's generally mm-hmm. how it starts. But then, as you know, <laughs> and then there's sort of, and how it's going and the way it's going mm-hmm. is is always going to be personal uh, as well as, of course, political and economic. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So one last question. So um, one of the things that's super fascinating about the book that it's sort of, I mean, the world building is really rich and complicated and I can't possibly do justice to it in the next five minutes. But one thing that I really thought was super fascinating is that there's this kind of, there are these two schools of thought among the colonizers. There's the Duatist school mm-hmm. where it's like, we basically have to be as brutal as possible to the people we're colonizing. And then there's the Tayorist, which is the more gentle, we've just got to like re-educate people. And they both mm-hmm. seem objectively awful. Like they seem objectively <laughs> awful in different ways. And I'm wondering what inspired that and what was the, what was the, why did you want to have two different kind of conflict, con- competing ideas of how to, you know, destroy people kind of? <laughs> Um, I mean, the short answer, because they are in the real world, that's very much where it comes from. I mean, we have the, I can't remember um, who it was, but it was one of one of the old American generals while he was sweeping through, sweeping west and like stealing Native American children. But there was the idea that you could save the the person and turn them into a civilized version of 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 a human aka a white human um yeah through like residential schools and other horrible right practices exactly and you know you've got that kind of rote schooling and then you've also got like american slavery like it is it was physical it was you might have a quote-unquote good master who would give you small benefits or you might just have nothing but brutality constantly. And, and so there's there's always been this kind of gentle hand versus the whip, but all of it's meant to control you. And I mean, and then we look at like the American school system now. Nobody is getting corporally punished anymore in theory. They shouldn't be. But minds are still being curtailed to think a certain way about certain things. Uh, there, People are taught like, oh, don't speak in this accent, don't speak this language. And, and you know, uh, because in theory, American schools are like, they're a, a, a melange of, of sorts. It's not a, an isolated boarding school where you're trained out of things, but the children also now, now will help to curtail anything that's different about you. And so it may be more gentle than beatings, like physical beatings, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel good. And you still end up with the same like warped sense of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, no, it's very true. Um, and on that like uplifting <laughs> note, thank you so much for joining us, Sheree. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me uh, online at Twitter, my at C underscore L underscore C-L-A-R-K. 
um, or at my website, www.clclarkwrites.com. Nice. Awesome. Thanks cool. again for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great Thank you evening. so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us wherever you might find podcasts, even just possibly lying on the ground somewhere. Um, if you find us at Apple or some other place where you can leave a review, please do leave a review. It makes a huge difference. Also, we're on Twitter as OOACpod. And we have a Patreon, like we mentioned at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. We appreciate any and all support. Thanks so much to Veronica Simonetti, our incredibly brilliant and fearless producer. Thanks to Women's Audio Mission for letting us record here. And thanks so much to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you, our beloved and wonderful listeners. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye! Bye!